You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Story of King Arthur. If we can go to the next slide. And the story of the Knights of the Round Table and also Excalibur. How many of us love the story of King Arthur? Okay, 20% of us. All right, I guess the rest of you guys don't really like the story of King Arthur. That's okay. We're, we're still going to go through it. Now, when you get to the point where Arthur, who is a nobody in the beginning of the story, no one cares about him. No one knows his royal lineage. No one knows who this guy is destined to be. But before he pulls out the sword, everything is, is great with his life. And once he pulls out the sword, a lot of us, the expectation is, oh, this is going to be great. The positive thing is people are going to know who he is. Uh, he's going to become the king of England. He's going to unify everything. There will be peace in the land. The land will be healed also because the land, the sword, and the king, they are all one. And then now once the king gets the sword that belongs to him, everything is going to be okay. The land will be blessed. But one thing that people don't think about is also the negative part about this. Once he pulls that sword Everyone who wants that sword, now, it's, now that it has been pulled, knows who to target in order to get that sword. So Arthur needs to quickly become king and go against all his opposition and reunite England, or else he's going to be killed. And that's the negative side of King Arthur that we often forget. We always think, oh, it's a blessing. But in actuality, either he becomes king and he declares himself king, or he's going to be killed. Now, when we come to the life of Jesus at this part of the story, it's the end of his third year. Jesus, is, at 33, is pretty much in a protracted, sword-is-drawn moment. He's in the same position as Arthur is when he pulls out the sword. So it's now the third year of Jesus' ministry. Year one was the year of mystery. People are trying to figure out who this guy is. Some people are getting wise and realizing, hey, this is, this is possibly the Messiah, then year two is the year of Jesus' popularity. They find out he's the Messiah, the one that will be crowned the king of Israel and then eventually the entire world. So everyone's excited. He's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people by resur resurrecting them from the dead. And so they love him. And there are crowds of thousands upon thousands just follow him wherever he goes. And then year three, which is where we are right now, is the year of opposition. You know, there's something to be said about when you have popularity as a pop politician or popularity as a religious figure, that there's also going to be great opposition because those issues are issues that do divide politics and religion. And Jesus had something to say about both. And so with great popularity also came great opposition. All you have to do now is look at what's going on with politics. There's great popularity, but also great opposition, regardless of which side of the aisle you belong to in your political leanings. So at this time, the confident expectation of people about Jesus was either he would become Israel's new king and take out his opposition by doing so, or sooner or later he would be killed. And this isn't just guesswork from Pastor Peter. This is what people were talking about. We know that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of his popularity for various reasons. We know that the people themselves wanted to make him king, wanted to even force him to be king. And we know Jesus himself knew this because he predicted 
his own death and resurrection, even though the people didn't understand what he meant when he actually shared that. Now, let's go through this. How is this so? What do I mean by these things? Either be killed or be king. How so? Well, first of all, Jesus' popularity amongst the common people was now at its highest. It was now at its highest, so much so that it had become a distraction to his goals, like the cross. So he had become so popular, there are thousands of people, and at certain times there's over 10,000 people thrying him, that Jesus had to intentionally reduce his popularity by offending current followers who were there for unspiritual reasons. You know, when you have a religious figure and you have tens of thousands of people following you, there's always going to be a smaller to a large percentage which aren't there because they really want to know what you have to say. They're there because they want to be popular too. They're there because they want the free food you have to offer, right? The five loaves and the two fishes. All of a sudden, Jesus replicates them to feed everyone, and there's 12 baskets left. Wow, most people back then were in a very harsh economy. Either you were super rich or you're super poor. Jesus offers free food. Let's join him. But not all of them would join him and want to hear what he had to say. I mean, yeah, they heard what he had to say, but the real reason why they were there is because they wanted to see the interesting, entertaining miracles that he would perform and also get that free food and maybe get some left over in order to bring back home. And so Jesus, in order to to prevent this from happening, he actually, there are times in the word where he actually, it shows him actually reducing, intentionally reducing the amount of his followers. And so we see in John chapter 6, verse 26, and also verses 51 to 66, Jesus here speaking with over 10,000 present. This is right after uh, the miracle of the the five loaves and the two fish, uh, where there's 5,000 men present besides women and children. So if you include the women and children, there's probably at least 10,000 to 15,000. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And then he uses that to give a spiritual teaching and also at the same time to turn off people who really weren't wanting to follow him to leave. Really interesting. I mean, we, in, your, in your thoughts, you're thinking, well, wouldn't, Jesus, wouldn't you want to get as many people as possible so that at least there are some who are really following you for the right reasons? Well, Jesus actually turned people away, and, and we're going to see why uh, soon enough. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then he starts saying things that are sort of controversial and sort of gross. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? cannibalism, right? What if Jesus uh, appeared to you and said, hey, you want eternal life? Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Like, that's, that's wrong, right? That's wrong. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus wants you to become vampires? What's going on? Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh My flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And so he's giving them a hard statement 
knowing that the people who really don't care won't realize that he's being figurative. Uh, and the people who do care will realize that. And he's hoping to thin the ranks so that only those people who truly want to know the truth will follow him. And this is the result. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Right? Some people here like, love to be trolls online. I'm telling you, you will not surpass Jesus as the ultimate troll, okay? Does this offend you? Of course it offends, right? It's going to offend those people who don't really understand, which was a lot of times the purpose of the parables. Those who will hear will hear. Those who will not hear, they will be, they'll be able to listen to it, but they will not fully understand. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And that was Jesus' intention. That was, ironically, that was Jesus' uh, intention. And as you know, as you keep reading through the Gospels, you find out that, but after a while, they come back and they keep following him. And again, they're a distraction to him. Now, not only did Jesus have to intentionally drive away people who were already following him, but he had to figure out a way not to have additional, additional new followers who really were not intent of being his true disciples. So Jesus also had to intentionally reduce his popularity and minimize the flow of new followers by telling his current followers not to talk about his true identity to others yet. And that's what a lot of biblical scholars and theologians call the messianic secret. So when you read through the Gospels, it's interesting that you come to certain points where all of a sudden Jesus is so popular, he heals someone, or someone realizes that he's the Messiah, and Jesus actually tells them, hey, don't tell this to anyone. And you're like, as the reader, you're like, what? Don't you want people to know? And we realize that, well, there's a bigger plan that will be sort of waylaid if all of a sudden Jesus becomes so popular that he can't follow that bigger plan. And that's what's called Jesus telling them to not yet reveal what his true identity is until later. And that's the messianic secret. We see an example of this in Mark 1, verse 41 to 45. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leprous man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. What? What? Wouldn't, wouldn't Jesus want everyone to know, right? Then more people will follow him, right? Well, we find out at the end of this passage why he said this. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Bad person. He did not listen to what Jesus directly said. He did the exact opposite. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. All right, those of you that follow celebrity news know, know what's going on. Celebrities, uh, especially A-list celebrities, people like Tom Cruise, right? It's so hard for him to just get around. He, 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 if he just walks into a restaurant, a P.F. Chang's, all of a sudden, he'll be thronged, right? And so he goes in incognito with sunglasses and like maybe a, a cap, and no one knows that he's there. This is the same thing that's going on with Jesus. He is he is celebrity status. He is 
the Messiah, and people are, see him as such, and they want him to be king. He can't go anywhere if people know who he really is to do his actual work. How do we know this? Well, as I said before, and as I'm going to point out now, his followers intended to force Jesus to be Israel's new king if he didn't do it himself soon. Notice that when you read through the Gospels, especially at this part of the story, all the way until this point, Jesus doesn't go, hey, you guys, I'm going to crown myself king, and you 12 disciples are going to be with me. All right, and this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to walk up uh, to, to Herod's door, and I'm going to break it down, and, and I'm going to give you guys different swords, and we're going to go and Like, he never says anything like that. The people who are saying that isn't Jesus, but it's the people, particularly people like Simon the Zealot, who was looking forward to this. They wanted to make him king because he wasn't saying anything about being an earthly king yet. Instead, he's healing people, talking about parables of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, and giving sermons about how you're supposed to turn the other cheek and how you're supposed to love your enemies, blah, blah, blah. What is that all about, right? That's not what we expect from you, Jesus. So we're going to make you and we're going to force you to become our new political leader. John 6, 14 to 15. After the people, again, over 10,000 of them, saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Right? Jesus could have taken power at any time he wanted to, but he actively didn't because there was a higher purpose, and that was the cross. Right? And this is what we call meekness. A lot of times when we, you think of meekness, you think, oh, Jesus is meek, and he's frail and walking around like a skinny religious person, and he's meek and mild. Ooh, right? But in reality, meekness means he knows how to control his power and use it at times that are necessary. And right here in John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus shows the power of his meekness, right? With one word, one snap of the finger, since a lot of us are waiting for Avengers uh, Endgame, he could have just destroyed all of his enemies if he wanted to, but he did not. He withdrew to a mountain by himself. And we here are so thankful that he actually withdrew to the mountain rather than declare himself king before the sins of the world were taken care of. Or else this would have happened again because the sins of the world were not taken care of if he just became king without dying on the cross. Second of all, at the same time, the Jewish leaders were at work. And they had their own expectations and devices and thoughts about what they wanted to do with Jesus. And at this time of the story, most of the Jewish leaders of Israel now saw Jesus as too dangerous for various reasons. So remember, there's many Jewish groups, but the two main ones are the Pharisees, and those are the conservatives, and then the Sadducees, those who are political. That's why they're sad, you see, because they're so political, right? <laughs> hey, I, I got some laughs, at least. Like, most of the time, like, my jokes are just, like, no one laughs at them. I laugh at them. But no one, but this time I got at least I got some laughs, right? But there's the Pharisees who are more considered with religious moral law, and the Sadducees who are more con concerned with social politics. Because remember, the Sadducees were, were the ones that had to deal with Rome 
and deal with the Hellenism that they accepted, whereas the Pharisees did not accept the encroaching Hellenism, and they decided to go into their synagogues and go against the temple system and have religious understanding in the synagogues. Well, they both saw Jesus as a danger. The Pharisees saw Jesus as a heretical blasphemer. Matthew 12, 9 to 14, going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogues. Remember, the synagogues are controlled by the Pharisees. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. All right, so Jesus answered the question, everything should be good, right? It makes sense. Um, any of these Pharisees would save their own little sheep, right, on the Sabbath if uh, that sheep was in danger. So, of course, a human being who is more important than a sheep, then it's okay to then rescue this person. And at this point, the example of the rescue is to heal the man with the shriveled hand. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And what is the Pharisees' response? Oh, wow, praise God, a great prophet is here. Okay, next slide. No. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. The Sadducees believed Jesus would trigger Caesar to destroy what was left of Israel. So they didn't really care about the blasphemy, the heretical blasphemy, as much as what's going to happen to the nation, because they're the ones that are directly dealing with the Romans, um, specifically from the temple and, and also dealing with Herod. And they thought, well, if Jesus becomes too popular and everyone follows him as the Messiah, all of a sudden it's going to get back to Rome that there's a new king in Israel that's not Herod, who is Rome's puppet king. And then Caesar's going to bring down an army to correct everything. And when Caesar brings an army down, he's not very particular with who he kills and who he jails. We might lose our nation again, right? And it's described here in John 11, 47 to 53, then the chief priests who were Sadducees and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, Jesus, performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You know, I always knew about those pesky Italians. You can't trust them, right? Just kidding, okay? I'm not a racist, right? I'm not a racist. Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, also a Sadducee, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. And what's funny is that Caiaphas negatively prophesies about Jesus' purpose, okay? You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So this is what's going on with the people. The people wanted him to be king. They, they were ready to force him to be king, Jesus' opposition wanted to kill him for various reasons. And at this point of the story, also something's going on in the spiritual realm, right? So in the earth spiritual realm, Satan, the prince of this world, and yes, he is called the prince of this world. If you 
read just one of the couple of different verses, John 12, 31. He's called the prince of this world. Um, for now, because Jesus is the true prince of peace that is over this world. But for now, Satan has been given reign as the prince of this world, isn't going to stay on the bench for long. Now, so far, Satan has lost every confrontation that he has had with Jesus. Remember, in the beginning, when Jesus is fasting in the wilderness after he was baptized, Satan came and tried to make Jesus fail on his mission. And one of the temptations that Satan had for Jesus is that, hey, I'm, as the prince of this world, I have the right to let you become the leader because I'm the prince of this world right now. I'll let you be the prince. You can rule over all the nations, but here's the condition. You have to first worship me. And of course, Jesus doesn't do it, right? Don't put the Lord your God to the test, and he defeats Satan. Satan leaves, right? And then there are also the different encounters that Jesus has with the demons, um, and he wins every time because this is, this is the Son of God. This is God in human form. He wins every time. He has more power than Satan. I want to say this one thing. A lot of times when you go online and you see um, different pictures, images of Satan and demons, you have, you know, the, the, the iconic image of Jesus, like, doing an arm wrestle with, with the devil, right? And they're arm wrestling together. That's like one of the most heretical images ever. How many of you have used that image before for some reason, homework or project? Okay, none of you are going to raise your hand because I said that that's the most heretical image ever. Okay, but don't worry, I'm not going to stone you. Okay, it's not going to happen. But it's heretical because of the fact is they're not equals. Okay, God and the devil are not yin and yang. They're not equals. The equal, there is no equal to God. Okay, there is no equal to Jesus. The equal of Satan is most likely a seraphim or a cherubim or possibly Michael the archangel. That's Satan's equal. So you should have Michael the archangel wrestling, you know, Satan. But Satan's a little more higher than Michael or the archangel if you look at the history. But when it comes to comparing God and Satan, it's, that's a misnomer. There is no, the only reason why Satan has so much power right now is because of humanity's sin. When our, when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, he allowed then Satan to be able to control the world because we chose his way instead of God's way. So that's the only reason why Satan has so much power. But the greatness of Jesus is there will be one day where that will be done away with, where Jesus will then be the prince of this world and the prince of peace, not just figuratively, but literally on this earth. So every time Satan has tried to confront Jesus, Satan has lost, right? Sooner or later, Satan's going to go, going to get directly involved again. And at this part of the story, near the end of Jesus' third year of ministry, he does. He actually does it through Judas. In Luke chapter 22, verse 1 to 6, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. So this is sort of what we're going to be celebrating in the following weeks. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. So we already talked about this, okay? The Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus, i.e. kill him. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Okay, that's scary. Satan actually entered Judas. 
We all know that demon possession is real, and we all know that there's different levels of demons, but Satan decided to enter into you. That's scary, okay? Because this is like the highest order of, of evil angels. Satan decided to enter. And so now Judas, being possessed by Satan, went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And we know that's what happened uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane. Also, Jesus himself shared to his disciples that he was going to be killed. So this, is, this wasn't just the expectations of uh, the Jewish leaders. This was not just the expectations of the people. Hey, you better become king or you're going to get killed because there are people out there that want to kill you because you're too popular. Jesus even told his disciples, well, it's true, I'm going to be killed, right? He was telling his disciples now about his imminent death. Mark 9, 30 to 32, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man... Okay, not the Son of God, the Son of Man. Ooh, what does that mean? We're going to figure that out. Is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus tells his disciples, they will kill him. What does that mean? It means that they're going to kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay? Right? Pretty easy to understand. Right? No, actually, no, it's not easy to understand, because verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and were afraid to ask him about it. You know, have you ever argued with a person that has a different ideology, um, and you state plainly, like, this is the fact, this is the truth, and like, no, it's not the truth, it can't be, it's not the truth, it can't be, right? And it's, it, it's because they have a certain framework and an expectation for Jesus and when Jesus says, no, I'm going to be killed, they can't, it's, it's not within their worldview system to be able, so, they, so mentally they just, I'm going to be killed. It just slides from one year to the other year. And then, oh, well, oh yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. And then they don't realize it. And then it happens. They're like, oh, what happened? What happened? And they all run away, right? That's exactly what, what happened, okay? Now, why did they not understand something so easy to understand? Well, because it wasn't part of their their mental framework of what a Messiah should be. A Messiah doesn't get killed. That's why you're a Messiah. You're going to be the king of the world, right? You're not going to get killed. You can't get killed. You're the Messiah, okay? Now, you might die of old age later in the future, but you're not going to get killed right now. You haven't even been declared king yet. Also, when he said, uh, uh, and, and in three days he's going to rise, the Jewish understanding of the resurrection wasn't a present thing. It was at the way end. So at the end of history, everyone's going to rise from the dead. All the righteous people will rise from the dead. But Jesus isn't even crowned king yet, so it's not the end of history. So they couldn't fathom what Jesus was, was trying to say. It was, it was totally foreign to their current concept of what the Messiah uh, should be. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't telling them that something they can understand, because those of us 
who have studied the Bible realize that there were certain passages in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were avoiding at this time because of the political unrest that was going on. They did not want to hear about Isaiah 53, which talked about the suffering servant who would die for the sins of the world, because they didn't need that type of savior at that time. They needed a Messiah that would deliver them from the Romans. They didn't need a suffering servant. They needed a warrior king. And so they just avoided all of the verses that talked about what Jesus was plainly saying and gravitating towards Jesus' second coming rather than his first coming. Now, again, it's important to understand the expectations of the people. And this is why I say again, with all this in play, from the perspective of Jesus' followers, he's going to have to proclaim himself Messiah King soon and forcibly remove his enemies or else he's going to get captured and killed by those very same enemies. And sometimes we hear this hypothesis of, oh, Judas, the reason why he betrayed Jesus wasn't because he really wanted to betray him for money because 30 pieces of silver actually isn't that much. There are some economists that have measured 30 pieces of silver to just be 90 U.S. dollars using 2007 exchange rates. That's it, okay? So there must have been another reason, and, and the reason that a lot of people point out is, oh, well, Judas, or he was trying to force Jesus' hand, so if he gets captured, he'll then finally start this revolt, show his true power, and become king. So this is one of the reasons why some biblical scholars believe Jesus betrayed Judas betrayed Jesus. It wasn't just for the money. He wanted to force Jesus' hand. Now, what was Jesus' reaction to all of this? You got the people, oh, we're going to make you king. We're going to make you king. You're trying to offend us and, and, and cause us to go away. It's not working. We're going to make you king because we know that you're the Messiah. The Jewish leaders, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. We're going to capture you, and we're going to kill you. Uh, on both sides, uh, from the conservative angle, from the liberal angle, we're going we're gonna to kill you. Satan is trying to do his work through all of the, the different uh, demon, demonically possessed people that Jesus is encountering. The prince of, of the world is going against the prince of peace. And what's Jesus' reaction? Total calmness. Jesus is a cool cat. Okay? Have you guys... Uh, gone online uh, on YouTube and, and saw, you know, whenever someone stumps another, all of a sudden thug life, right? <laughs> right? Jesus is thug life in it, okay? Jesus is thug life. He's got, a, got, a, got glasses on. He's, he's a cool cat, right? Now, Jesus knew about everything we talked about, but nowhere in the Gospels do we see him stressed out. Now, those of you that have read through the Gospels said, no, you're wrong. You're wrong, Pastor Peter, because at the Garden of Gethsemane, he was stressed out, and I agree with you. But during the time when he was around for the first three years, it wasn't until the end that you see Jesus described as being stressed out. And even at the end, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't really stressed out because of the expectations of the people, because of the expectations of the Jewish leaders. He was stressed out because he was now beginning to feel the metaphysical unbalance and burden of taking all of the sins of mankind upon himself, and soon he's going to be placed on the cross and nailed to it. That's what he was stressed out about. He was able to take a lot of the expectations and the pressures of the people and his enemies, but now he was actually taking the sins of the world upon himself. 
Think about it. He wasn't just taking 12 sins, the, the sins of his disciples. He was taking the sins of the world at that time. That's about over 200 million people. And he didn't just take the sins of the world for the people at present. He was taking the sins of the world for everyone in the past, present, and future. That's billions of people, right? If you, and if you want to think uh, maybe an analogy that will help you understand it, Paul, okay, right there, a healthy young man, right there, Paul, you. Paul, what if all of your relatives to the second cousins contracted some kind of disease, and we found out that there's a, a way to cure all of them, but you would have to take all of their diseases at the same time, and you have to go through it, right? And Paul, being the hero that he is, says, yes, I will do it. And so he takes all of the diseases of 30 people, He's like, oh, help me, right? Jesus is taking over 200 million spiritual disease, so to speak. And he is under a great burden and a great weight. So much so that he even says, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup be taken away from me. But that's not for me to share with you. Pastor Chris will share with you that uh, next week or the following week. <laughs> All right. He's able to be calm because he knew who he was. And what his purpose was. And he followed it, followed it to the end. He knew he wa- who he was, and he knew what his specific purpose was, and so he followed it to the end. Now, th- that is very important to remember, okay? Jesus knew who he was and what his purpose was, and he followed it to the end. Now, I just restated that three times, so it's important, okay? Also, he had been preparing for the crucifixion ever since he was a child, right? What was his career before being an itinerant minister? Carpenter, right? And so usually back then, it's not like today where, you know, your parents will go, hey, now you graduated high school. Um, you know, I'm a truck driver. You got to be a truck driver, right? It's not like that. It's like, hey, you know what? You have all these options. If you want to be a truck driver, I could teach you the trade, but you can go to college and learn over like a hundred different types of majors and be whatever you want to be, right? It's the whole enlightenment mentality, right? You can do whatever you want to be as long as you put your heart into it and you will be successful, young man, young woman. Back then, it wasn't like that. You became pretty much what your parents were. And so you're, you, you were being groomed to be a successful carpenter in that local area of Nazareth. And so ever since Jesus is a toddler, he's using nails. He's using hammers. And he's hitting those hammers until he's experiencing it. He's feeling it. He cuts himself. He's feeling the blood. He's taking smaller pieces and using a hammer and nail to build a larger piece, something beautiful out of the individual pieces. And it's metaphorically prophesying his future that he will be sacrificed as one small piece to build a greater piece called the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not downplaying the suffering that he went through. Of course he felt the pain. Nothing is going to prepare you for the actual pain of crucifixion and taking on the sins of the world. But ever since he was a toddler, he was being raised to experience this and to understand what the culture of nail and wood would be like. Because that was a metaphor for what would happen in his future. Now, this part of the story begins with a high note, Peter's correct declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. You can find that in Matthew chapter 16. And this part of the story ends in a very low note, Judas Iscariot 
betraying Jesus for money. You can find that in Luke chapter 22. By the end of the story, at this part, we are left with these questions. Will Jesus proclaim himself king before the Jewish leaders capture him? Why did Jesus say he would have to die and rise from the dead soon? If he is the Messiah king, why would there even be a need for this? How is Jesus going to take away the sins of the world if he really dies? Right? Every Jewish person back then understand why people die. People die because of sin. Right? The wages of sin is death, right? The cost of sin is death. The reason why there's death is because of sin. So if Jesus dies, he died in his sins. Like, how is Jesus going to take the sins of the world if he says he's going to die, right? What's going to happen to the disciples and other followers of Jesus, especially Judas Iscariot, who just betrayed him? And last but not least, will Satan actually win, right? Now, a quick side note before we go into some reflections is what is the difference between Son of Man and Son of God? We see, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus being called the Son of God. We see, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus being called the Son of Man. Now, they are interchangeable, but there are unique, significant meanings to each. Right? The New Testament uses Son of God and Son of Man interchangeably. Both mean a divine Messiah, and surprisingly, a messianic figure that was higher in stature than the popular view of Messiah the Jews had at the time. So the Jews back then, they had the idea of Messiah as being a very powerful political man who had a lot of Holy Spirit working through him. So the Messiah was not going to be God come in flesh. Uh, The Messiah instead will be a very powerful political figure with the Holy Spirit truly working through him. Right? So think of like King David of old, a very powerful political figure who because of the Holy Spirit, God working in him and through him, he was able to defeat a giant like Goliath and be able to win all these wars against uh, the Israeli enemies. And so the Messiah was going to be like that. But they didn't think of Messiah being the Son of God or the Son of Man. So this was something unexpected but true that Jesus was both Son of God and also Son of Man. Now, Son of God is pretty easy to understand. You know, he's God in human form, right? Uh, In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, when the angel reveals what's going to happen to the Virgin Mary, Jesus is sent from God the Father, conceived by the Virgin Mary miraculously through God the Holy Spirit, right? And we realize that the Son of God isn't a biological title. This is where the Mormons get it wrong, and this is where Um, secular scholars get it wrong because they take a note from uh, Greek uh, mythology and they say, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God just like um, Hercules was the son of Zeus, right? And Zeus fancied a human woman and then they mated and then all of a sudden you have Hercules and he has God-like powers because he's half God, right? This is not the biblical conception or the Christian conception of who Jesus is. Jesus is not biologically a son of God. Jesus, the title son of God is a royal title, meaning that he's the prince of God. He has just as much authority and power as God the Father himself, and he's right at God the Father's side. And it's a hard concept to understand from an Old Testament perspective because of the fact that there's less of a concept of a trinity. 
Now, you can still argue for it, and if you want to know why, I, I will share with you why, but it doesn't really pertain to what we're talking about right now. Now, Son of Man is more difficult to understand because it seems like that's so redundant, right? Like, Adolf, you're, you're a son of a man and a woman, right? If you say no, then, then we have a living angel. <laughs> we have an angel, a seraphim, or a cherubim right over here, or, or is actually Jesus in Chinese form, right? <laughs> um, right? Oh, son of man. Oh, we're all son of men, right? And, and that's what a lot of people think. Oh, Jesus is a son of man, meaning that he's descended from man uh, through Adam and Eve, through Noah, and then through the royal line of David. And so he's son of God, and he's also son of man, which makes him a perfect sacrifice, supernatural sacrifice uh, representing humankind. Yes, that is true, but it's a lot more than that. There's a significance to the term son of man. And it's significant because it does not just mean that Jesus is a descendant of man. The term is a divine messianic term found in the prophecies of Daniel and describes a human being who will be worshipped alongside God the Father. Now, this has been a problem to Jewish scholars for ages. They, they will say, oh, it's a mystery, we don't know how to resolve this, because it sounds like you have two gods, but yet they're one. You have the Ancient of Days, who's God the Father, and then you have someone like the Son of Man, and both of them are going to be worshipped, and they both have an eternal kingdom full of glory and power. How do you explain this? Unless you have the Christian understanding of the Trinity, it's very hard to explain this, okay? Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 and 13 to 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And guess who Jesus says he himself is? that he is not just the son of God, but he is the son of man, referencing to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And again, a hint to the New Testament understanding of the triune God, the Trinity. So we find that Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, if we can go to the next slide, is the Old Testament version of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. What we just read is just a different way of saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Nothing was created other than what He created. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, showing the glory of God the Father, a glory full of grace and truth. Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man much more than the Son of God. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God 30 times. He's called the Son of Man in the New Testament 76 times. And so we see that Jesus is referring himself to the Messianic prophecy of Daniel more than just 
the term Son of God. Now, here are a couple of reflections to think about as we apply this part of the biblical story into our lives. If you know who you are under God and your purpose in this world, you'll be able to handle the pressures of life and people well. So if you're struggling with expectations of people, pressures in life, pressures from people that you know or don't know, if you know who you are under God and your purpose in this world, you'll be able to handle it. Why do I say that? Because that's how Jesus did it, right? How was Jesus not phased much under the expectations of his followers and his enemies? Because he knew who he was under his father and what his purpose was in this world. And so he just followed that purpose. And everything thrown at him, it didn't phase him because he had a vision. He had a goal. He had a very solid goal, and he just walked towards that path. If you focus your life on finding out who God is, how much he loves you, what his will is for your life, and focus on these three things, you'll naturally care less about what others think about you or the stresses that life has for you because you're going to follow that goal no matter what. Now imagine, imagine if Jesus really and literally appeared to you. Okay? So Annie, imagine if Jesus literally and really appeared to you and asked you to be a plumber serving Kern County in five to seven years. How would you respond? I guarantee you, Annie, and others, if Jesus actually appeared to you, that within five to seven years, you will train yourself and you will actually do that. I also guarantee that any shade your friends, your enemies throw at you, aha, you're training to be a plumber, come on, you know, that's dumb. Okay, no offense to plumbers that are here, all right, that that's not going to affect you. You know why it's not going to affect you? Because you know that it was God who told you to do it. And you know that God told you specifically what he wanted you to do. And you'll do it, right? Nothing's going to affect you. And that's exactly what it was like with Jesus. He knew who God was, who he was, and what God's purpose was for his life. And so he was able to take all that persecution. Now, if you want to have that attitude, you start by doing the basics. Okay? It always goes back to the basics. Read your Bible. Get to know God and who you are in his eyes. And then continue to do what Jesus says. Second of all, another reflection that we see from the story here is that God is still sovereign and in control even when you feel like the situation is impossible and there is no way out. So near a situation that seems like there's no way out and it's impossible, you don't think that God is in control? God is still in, in control. He's still sovereign regardless of how you feel. And we see this with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, people thought that Jesus would either declare his kingship and messiahship publicly in order to avoid being killed, right? They never thought that God had a third option, that Jesus would rise from the dead and be king after being killed and save humanity from sin in the process. You get more benefits that way. They didn't think that way. They think either death or either be king and live. They didn't think, oh, death, resurrect, be king, and save the whole world from their sins, right? There's always a third way that we may not think about. And the reason why is because God is always in the business of turning lemon situations 
into lemonade. We all have lemon situations. Even this week, we probably have lemon situations that we're in, but we don't turn to God to see what kind of lemonade that he's trying to produce in that situation. Just read through the Bible for plenty of examples. Daniel, we just read a passage from him. David, Joseph, Noah. My goodness, Noah was in the worst situation. All the way through the New Testament, we see examples through the stories of people's lives. We see scripture verses being written that say something like, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What? I thought the first shall be first, and the last shall be last. No, according to God and the way he works, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We see verses like, God has chosen the weak to confound the strong. God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. God is always in the business of turning impossible situations to something possible. God is always in the business of making lemonade from lemonade situations. And from this part of the story, be looking for that third option in your own life circumstances. And if you can't see it, this is where you wait on the Lord. As hard as it is, stay faithful to God. Don't do it the world's way. Don't do it the devil's way. Stay faithful to God, and he will reveal that way to you in time. This is what that Bible memory verse that you memorize when you're young stated. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Let's pray. Father God, um, we look forward to the Lord's Supper right now, and we look forward to uh, Passover week, Easter week that's happening uh, after next week. But uh, we also, as we're going through this story, ask you for forgiveness. It is because of our sin that put you, your son, on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you gave us for doing that. Uh, And at the same time, we are ashamed. But also at the same time, we thank you for the life that you give us. And the image of God in us that has been scarred, has been renewed. And we are eternally grateful for the infinite worth that you give us through restoring that image by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the third way that you've shown us that your son, Jesus, wasn't going to be killed forever. And he wasn't going to be king without doing his job first, which is taking away the sin of the world and the power of sin and death. And we thank you that that has happened because if that didn't, we would not have life even here and around the world for those who believe in Christ. We remember that again as we partake in this communion and Lord's Supper. Got our hearts to be ready for it as we partake it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.